Well, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12, and we're going to pick up at verse uh, 25. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25. And before we read, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and again, we ask that you would help us to learn from it and to use it to discern our own hearts before you and to seek to walk more closely with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the previous uh, part of the chapter, we've found how uh, Jeroboam has led the ten tribes um, to separate from the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And Jeroboam is the kind of central character here, um, human character. Verse 25 says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem, in the hill country of Ephraim, and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he sent one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin. For the people went as far as Dan to be before one, he also made temples in high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And, the Je- and Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, uh, so he did in Bethel sacrificing to the calves that he had made. He placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of, in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Well, as we alluded to just a moment ago, there are, there are two main human characters in 1 Kings 12. Uh, the first is Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and, uh, uh, who has come to the throne at the death of Solomon. So Rehoboam succeeds to the throne. But he has something of a foolish son. Uh, he's not like Solomon's early days. Uh, this is a foolish son. And so even though he has gone to the older members of the court... Uh, men who would have served under Solomon, who might have a bit of experience, and asked their advice, he, he rejects their advice. And instead, he goes to his young friends, the friends that he grew up with, the friends he went to school with and uh, messed about with. And uh, he asks their advice. And the advice is, um, and the question is, how can I win the people over? How can I get the people to follow me? The older men in the, in, the, in the court come to him and say, if you, if you take your, the whip hand off the people and make life easier for them and be their servants and look after them, then they will love you. 
And yet the young men say, no, crack the whip harder. Crack the whip harder. You want to beat them into submission to make sure that you get what uh, they do, whatever you want them to do. And this problem causes, this attitude of Rehoboam causes widespread disaffection which leads to the separation of the ten northern tribes from, the, from Judah and Benjamin in the south. And uh, Rehoboam is left with two tribes, not the twelve, but two. Um, and as we saw last time, he started to make plans to try and win them back by the might of battle. But in the end, God came and stepped in and dissuaded him from such foolishness. Well, that's one character, Rehoboam. But the other character is Jeroboam. So two similar names. Sometimes you get them mixed up. Uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Jeroboam uh, is not the son of uh, uh, Solomon. He's the son of Nebat. He was actually in exile, sent at a young age out to Egypt. And at the death of Solomon, Jeroboam comes back. Uh, He comes back a powerful man. And he kind of takes up the leadership of the cause of these ten tribes of the north. He's the one that represents them coming into the court of Rehoboam. So Jeroboam comes and speaks to Rehoboam about the disaffection of the northern tribes. And as a result of the foolish pride, so that's the two characters, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. as a result of this foolishness of Rehoboam, the two parties split and you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. That's the way it's going to be now for the rest of um, Israelite history. But of course, that's, okay, that's the politics of what's going on. But that's not all that's going on, of course, as we saw, saw last time. God has planned all of this. And if you've been following carefully, you'll see why he's planned all of these things. When Solomon, towards the end of his life, uh, had, what happened at the end of his life? Well, he turned away from the Lord in his heart. And uh, the whole story of Solomon is a sad story of the heart drifting away from God. So at the end of his life, he seems to be absolutely nowhere. He's like, just like an, any other pagan king, a rich pagan king. With, uh, he's worshipping all the false gods. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he has amassed huge amounts of wealth. And uh, his relationship to the Lord seems to be nowhere. He has turned away from the Lord in his heart, says 11.9. And the Lord comes to Solomon and says, this is what's going to happen to you. I'm going to tear away the ten tribes from the north from you. Not from you, but from your son when he comes to the throne. And uh, this is because of your sin. And, and so God is doing this. And then later in chapter 11, we find that the Lord comes to Jeroboam with a promise to him through the prophet Ahijah. And uh, if you look back to 1137... You'll see this, the Lord says, and I will take you 
and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and I will build you a sure house. That's about his, his family line. I will build you a sure house I will build, as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. What an amazing promise. But it's a conditional promise. It's conditional on him being faithful to the Lord and to walk in his ways so this is a, this is a great promise for Jeroboam I mean what, why would you not be blessed by hearing that from God from a prophet of God that God is going to bless you and all I need to do is just be faithful to him well as we see as we'll see in a moment that's not what happens he doesn't stay faithful to God Actually, there's a fundamental heart problem even with Jeroboam. And we'll see that in a moment. And the the root problem of all of these kinds of things, and even the root problems of a Christian's life, is often the state of the heart. And what what the heart is doing in relationship to God. It's always the hidden things that really matter in the Christian life. How you are giving yourself to the Lord. Now I want to examine with you what happens in this remainder of this chapter and uh, what some of the heart issues are that are going on. One, and So three things I just want to draw out this evening. And the first thing is, Jeroboam shows us a need for security. A need for security. The kingdom is now split. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, Jeroboam rather, uh, needs to establish where he's going to be based. He starts building Shechem, and then he, after that, he moves on to uh, to Penuel. And Shechem is a place that already existed. It's the place that Abraham came to when he first came to Canaan, when the Lord brought him to the Promised Land in chapter, Genesis chapter 12, and then in Genesis. 33, it's described as a Canaanite city. So it already exists. So when it says that uh, Jeroboam went to build it, it probably means that he was knocking it into shape as a capital city for the new king and fortifying it and all sorts of things. And then he moves on to Penuel as well. Now these two cities are, if you imagine a map of the Jordan River going, wiggling its way from the Sea of Galilee to the north, and it wiggles its way down into the Dead Sea, and Jerusalem is just slightly to the, um, the west of the north end of the Dead Sea. And, uh, but just to the north, just below Galilee, is, uh, on the western side is uh, Shechem in the, in the hill country, and on the eastern side is Peniel. So two fortresses being established to ward off any... Uh, uh, attacker or, of any other kingdoms. This is what kings do, isn't it? Kings just start building and uh, preparing for uh, security. Um, in a sense, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what kings do. But there's something else going on here that we need to pay attention to. And it is the conversation that is going on in the heart of Jeroboam. Um, it's not 
that having a conversation in your heart that's that's the problem per se. We can't actually help it. You know, we are Christian people with imagination and thoughts, and and we have these conversations within our own uh, minds and hearts. But the issue is, with whom are you having that conversation? Jeroboam is having a conversation with himself when he should be having a conversation with God in prayer. And so he's thinking about his own hearts and his own thoughts and his own worries and his own fears. And he is steeped in fears about the future. You know, and our job is, as Christians is when we're having that conversation and we're, we're seeking God's face in prayer, we're also using his word, I hope, you're using his word to inform the conversation. This is how the, God the Holy Spirit works in the Christian life. We pray to him, he speaks to us through his word. We've got to be faithful in studying the word and under the Holy Spirit seeking to understand it so, this, so that we then grow in this ability to converse with God and not let our conversations simply be flights of fancy that are not rooted in God's word. Well, Jeroboam, what about him? He knows God's word. It's interesting, isn't it? He knows God's word. Chapter 11, we just read it. God comes to him with a promise, a conditional promise. He knows what God wants from him. And yet, none of that enters into his thinking about what he's going to do next. This is the shocking thing about it as you think about it. The man with an immense privilege, a prophet, is sent to him. To bring the very, a very personal word of God to him. This is how God reveals himself at times in the Old Testament. And only a few people are privileged to receive that. And does he sit there and think, oh, I really need to treasure those words that God has just spoken to me. And pay deep attention to them. No, he forgets all. Stuff that. I'll do my own thing. You know, this is the heart of Jeroboam, you see. He starts having this conversation with himself. And what, you know, all his worries and fears are what are feeding into this inner conversation that's going on here. At no point does his heart turn to the Lord. Instead, what he thinks about is the politics of the situation, in verses 26 and 27. He thinks that there's a danger because, because of the religion that's centered around Jerusalem, and these ten tribes are still thinking about Jerusalem, and where to worship God, the temple is the center. The temple is the place where God is going to put his name, at least for that time. And so the people are going to have a, a, a natural affinity with going to Jerusalem three times a year for the great festivals that they need to have. And Jeroboam is starting to think, well, hang on a minute. Um, they're going to start wanting to go back to Jeroboam, the ten tribes. Uh, to Rehoboam, rather. Get my bones mixed up. <laughs> um, go back to Rehoboam. So he's got to t- make a political move to try and keep the people under control as it were and in the end he's actually fearing that they're going to kill him if he lets this run 
So here we see a man who has heard, though he has heard the word of God, nonetheless he is full of fears about the future, about loss of power, loss of influence, loss of control, loss of life. And he doesn't relate the two things together, the word of God and the situation that he's in. He doesn't start having a conversation with God about the situation that he's in. Am I going to trust God for the promises that he's made to me? Am I going to continue to be faithful to him, come what may, and do everything that he has commanded me to do? Friends, I don't suppose I have to point out the obvious but I think this is, a, prob- this is a, a common problem even in the heart of professing believers. The tendency when facing a real life problem uh, of our hearts, instead of turning to God and seeking wisdom from his word, uh, rather we have this inner conversation with ourselves that excludes God and his word. And, and you know, at best, that is a sign of immaturity that we don't turn to God. Um, and of course it's it's a sign of immaturity and of course we need to learn how to have that conversation with God how to train our hearts to approach him and speak to him about all our circumstances that we face and in our immaturity we're going to get things wrong but as we grow in maturity God grants us greater authority if you like in prayer And we begin to see that God leads us more wonderfully as the years go by. So at best, it's a a sign of immaturity that we don't have that inner conversation with God. But at its worst, it's perhaps a sign that you're not truly a believer yet. You're not truly trusting God. You never have. And I think this is the situation that Jeroboam is in. Though he has had a personal word from the Lord in his capacity as king of the people, he is not, he simply doesn't believe it. Doesn't pay attention to it. Rather, he rests on his own natural processes. Friends, how do you deal with difficult and worrying situations in your life? Is your first reaction to have a conversation with God about it? Or do you go into fix-it mode? where you start trying to find a a solution immediately before you've even thought about God you rest on yourself what is the inner conversation that goes on in your heart what does it tell you about your relationship to God here's the second thing false religion can be subtle Um, in verses 28 to 30 So Jeroboam's solution to the problem uh, was to subvert and change uh, the religious worship of the people. Now, of course, that that worship had been established in the law of God. God had, you know, the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments specify how God is to be worshipped. And it's vitally important that we pay attention to how God is to be worshipped instead of instituting new forms of, of, of worship. 
And what we're reading about here now in chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, is, as one commentator put it, the overthrow of orthodoxy and the substitution of heterodoxy. Uh, we're putting in a, he's putting in a new religion instead. And to solve a political problem, what Jeroboam is going to do is he is going to use religion to achieve what he wants. To use religion to achieve what he wants. Now, I don't need to tell you how common that is. We see it all the time amongst politicians. Politicians are always trying to uh, get religious believers of whatever faith it is to believe that the politician is on their side and use religion for their own ends so they can get into power. And those ends have got nothing to do with the faith itself. Certainly nothing to do with Christianity. So politicians can do this. But it can happen in personal life as well. We uh, seek to use religion to get something in life. I remember a story um, in the early days of this church. You know, in in the early days of the church, you're pretty desperate as a church planter. Uh, You'll follow up any lead. (laughs) And uh, I had a phone call from a a guy who... um, he wants to know about our church. You know, and I said, well, why don't we meet up together and meet for coffee? And uh, so we went and found somewhere to have coffee. And uh, as, as I usually do, I want to just find out a little bit about his spiritual background. How, how did he come to faith? What's he, uh, uh, where is he at spiritually? And, uh, of course, I, he started telling me about the story of how he had jumped from church to church to church. Um, and it wasn't really getting to the heart of things. Um, and then, kind of out of the blue, after about half an hour of, of chatting to him, he, he says, uh, does your church run salsa classes? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> does your church run salsa classes? And I was a bit nonplussed by this, and I said, uh, no, why? <laughs> why are you asking that? And he says, well, I want to find a wife. <laughs> and he thought the best way was to, you know, to find a, a you know, nice wife, who's a decent wife, they'd go to church, and they might have a salsa class that I could go and get kind of friendly with some of the women. Well, (laughs) um, it was then I realized he wasn't actually interested in the gospel at all. He wasn't interested in in church planting, establishing a church here in Solihull. Uh, He came along to us for a while, but he didn't stay around for very long. He had all kinds of other issues that came up. Um, I eventually had to stop him coming to the midweek meeting because he was so disruptive. And he was a bit of a bruiser of a guy. <laughs> a skinhead. Um, that was a, one of the scariest moments of my life, saying you can't come in here. Um, but that's an example of, just a silly example, of somebody using religion to get something else that they want. Come to church, find a wife. Nothing wrong with finding a wife. But, you know, if that's all you're interested in, uh, you're really on the wrong track. Um, And this is what Jeroboam is doing here. He is uh, using religion to shore up his power. And so in verse 28, um, he says this. Let me find it. Verse 28, he says to the people, um, the king took counsel made uh, two calves of gold, and he said to the people, you have gone up to uh, Jerusalem long enough. 
kind of arrogant, really. Like, you know, I've decided, that's, you've had enough of that. That's enough. Stop doing that. Don't do that. Let's do this instead. And that's the kind of idea. Oh, I've got these two calves. Why don't we just worship there with these two calves? Why do you have to go up to Jerusalem? He's trying to cut the, the ties with Jerusalem. And, um, and what he does is he starts essentially instituting a new religion. And you, but he does so in very subtle ways. Because it, it kind of looks the same, it's similar. But it's actually fundamentally different. Uh, just look at some of these ways. First, the first is the places of worship. So Bethel and Dan. Now if you know anything about your Bible history, you'll know that these are uh, significant places. They're not random places uh, chosen at random. But they have important links to the past. So Bethel is a place where both Abraham and Jacob worshipped God. You know, the name means Bethel, house of God. Bethel, house of God. And it's a place of worship. Um, Dan is, uh, is a slightly more kind of uh, less, well, less direct link. Um, Dan, there was once another attempt to set up an alternative uh, system of worship in Dan using carved images in Judges 18. And, um, and, but this was an attempt led by none other than the, son of, the grandson of Moses. So suddenly you've got, you know, he's, he's a significant figure. The grandson of Moses is doing this. What a reasonable thing that's, that must be to do. And so these places, Bethel and Dan, they have important links with the past and important characters in the past. Great leaders. And Jeroboam is trying to give the impression that his plans are backed up by the traditions of the past. Interesting. Well, some other things as well. Um, When he makes these two um, golden calves as the centerpiece of his new worship, uh, he declares in verse 28, uh, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, why is that interesting? Because it's almost a word-for-word quotation of the words of the Israelites to Aaron in Exodus 32 when they set up a golden calf. And they said to Aaron, Behold your God who has led you out of the land of Egypt. And do you remember what Aaron did? He kind of was convinced by that. He said, well, yeah, let's, let's worship uh, the, the fool. And he built an altar uh, to worship this God that they'd made. And um, they attribute to this golden calf the power of having saved them from slavery in Egypt. Now, to us, as we read that story, we can be horrified um, that Aaron and the Israelites did this. Uh, Because we remember the first uh, couple of commandments of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. But to the Israelites and to Aaron at the time, it just seemed so totally reasonable to do this. And so as you come to Jeroboam, who is ministering to people who are, are drifting from God, we're not to be too surprised that the people go along with what seems to be a tradition of the past 
with Aaron and the Israelites in Exodus 32. Let's do it again. But it seems that they've forgotten the aftermath of that story in Exodus 32. God was angry. He sent a plague. Many of them died. But let's forget that. Let's just think about the traditions of the past. And the things that we've done in the past that you can discover. Um, Let us have a diversity of worship practices. Let's try all these kind of different things because lots of people in the past have done all these things in the past. And it's perfectly within the bounds of the people of God. That's such a modern problem, isn't it? Whenever you get heresy arising in the church or simply an error that takes hold of a section of the church, people can always find a precedent in history, a strand of tradition or a hero of the past that embodies that tradition and gives justification to the thing you want to do. For example, talk to a Jehovah's Witness. And the Jehovah's Witness, great hero of history, is Arius of the 4th century who denied the deity of Christ. And so you have Arius, and you've got Athanasius against him, and Augustine against him, and various others against him. But actually, the story of that history is, from a human perspective, it's touch and go whether Arius was going to to prevail or not. In the end, the Orthodox, uh, uh, the right view prevailed by the grace of God. The Trinitarian view. But Jehovah's Witnesses today will, will don't, they'll not say to you this is a new religion. They will say that's a very old religion. It's an old bit of Christianity. It's, it's the true path of Christianity. And you, you've deviated from it. See, heretics will always find a precedent in history that I can use now today to justify what I'm doing. And the same is true of the many diverse errors in the Christian church today. Uh, they will try to mine history to find examples in the past that justify doing what we do today. Instead of carefully studying the scripture and what God has said in the past. And the thing about heresies and errors is that they are dangerous, but not just for the time that they emerge. They are dangerous for the generations to come. Because there will be somebody, several generations in the future, who will look back to your heresy, if you're a heretic, you look back to your heresy and say, look, there's somebody who has believed what we're believing now. That's why being faithful and being, uh, being, getting the truth right is really important. It's not good enough to accept just a great diversity of views without wrestling with the text of Scripture. So false religion can arise subtly and it can uh, appeal to past traditions. And at the same time, to do that, it has to be selective with God's word, not examining it uh, to make sure that you're grounded in the truth. And, you know, that's a danger for people who are terrible at reading their Bibles, for individuals. You know, if you are terrible at reading your Bible and studying it and paying attention to it, you are wide open to error and heresy and 
you, who knows, you may be the kind of person that says, I want to do things differently than everybody else has done it before. You need to diligently search the scriptures. You need to be faithful with God's word that he has given you and seek to do that and believe that. Here's the last thing. Uh, and it's much quicker. Um, so this organized, look at the organized foolishness of this new worship. So Jeroboam institutes this new system of worship. And it kind of looks like the real thing, but it's not quite the real thing. Uh, so for example, he consider who is leading worship. Uh, God established the Levitical priesthood under Moses, but Jeroboam appoints his own priests who are not necessarily Levites. But they're priests. Good system of religion. How's God to be worshipped? Well, God has laid it out in his Ten Commandments. But Jeroboam has made these two calves instead and called the people to worship them. Or where is he to be worshipped? God has said he's put his name in Jerusalem, at the temple. And that's to be the center of the national life. What does Jeroboam do? He determines that Dan and Bethel are to be the new places of worship. When are the festivals to take place? Well, again, God has, has laid that out in Leviticus 16. At the times of the year that these three great festivals are going to come, uh, are going to be, take place. But instead, Jeroboam specifies a new month. Not one of God's months. <laughs> Just a new one, a different one. And uh, the eighth month of the year, let's have a festival. And all of this, you see, looks similar, but not, the sa- not quite the same as the, worship, the true worship of the living God. And so Jeroboam is playing around with religion for his own ends. This is, uh, I think, more common than we might think. Right down to the individual level. Where people think that religion can be kind of gently massaged into the shape that they like. They will be aware of doing things that you like rather than things that are required of us. They think that Christianity is somehow malleable and flexible and can be adapted to the political and cultural and personal circumstances that are prevailing. And I wonder if there's anybody here this evening who thinks like that. Who thinks that I'll do just enough religion. But it's an involvement in religion that's not committed to the word of God. I wonder if there's anybody like that. I'll do religion, but I'm not committed to the word of God. And it has the effect of causing you to pick and choose the bits that you like and the bits that you don't like. Friends, if if that's you, please note with me the tone of mockery that uh, seems to be employed here by the writer. Yes, I think the writer is making fun of Jeroboam here. How, How so? Well, just listen to verses 32 and 33. Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests in the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month that he had devised from his own heart. 
See the repeated phrase there, that he had made. A drumbeat. Bang, 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 bang. This is a man who does his own thing. What a fool. He has his own objects of worship. He has his own places of worship. He has his own altar for worship. Um, And all of this he has devised in his own heart. He's made it up by himself. You you get that sort of tone of mockery in the writer's uh, phrasing. You see, making up your own religion, even picking and choosing the bits you like but rejecting the others that God has commanded, is not the religion of the triune God. The one true and living God. There's only one, and he's only spoken his word. And it's foolish to approach God like that. The only trouble trouble is going to come that way as as we'll begin to see in the life of Jeroboam as it unfolds. Friends, we need to be aware, uh, beware of our own hearts. And let's carefully examine our motives and ourselves. And let us seek to resolve, to seek the mind of God in every circumstance. And to worship God as he has commanded. You see, our model for this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has lived that perfect life. He is the one who has lived to do the will of his Father. And it's that Christ that lives within us today, if we're Christian. And so it's that attitude that he is building into your life, if you're a Christian. And you need to come to Christ to have it, if you don't have it already. This is all the only way to live. It's the only way to live for his glory and for our good and for the good of the church, and for the good of future generations who will follow us, should Christ return be delayed so long. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the searching nature of this, uh, this study in Jeroboam. Thank you for the way that one kings does search our hearts. And uh, we pray that you'd help us to be faithful, help us to believe your promises which are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has lived the perfect life for us and in our place. And he has done all for our salvation. Help us, we pray, to trust him. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.